So, Bob, you came over to the house, the yep. dogs mauled you, and <laughs> then we had a brief conversation, or a kind of a longer conversation about our childhood and yep. teenage years. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to share and to learn things about each other mm-hmm. that were interesting about our teenage personalities, mm-hmm. some alarming things, some <laughs> some normal things, some things we share in common. Yeah. Let's answer some emails. What do you say? Yep. Priscilla from Brazil, she says, I was wondering, what are your thoughts on talking about money with your clients? It's often a sensitive subject. So I was wondering, what are your thoughts on that? For example, when there is a financial struggle and the client asks for a discount, or when the client is usually late with a payment or some other situation, Bob, what do you think? Well, um, this does not come up for me. I'm, I suppose I'm lucky in that the people that I see can afford to pay me. If they couldn't, I imagine they would stop coming. I've gotten smart in my old age and that I don't let clients carry, I don't carry credit for clients mm-hmm. um, ever. But before, did you? I did, and I got burned by it. Meaning that a client might not pay that pay. day and they might build up a balance, a balance that they owe you. Yeah. And then what would happen sometimes? Well, the I've only done it a couple times. Um, when I was running the DBT class, occasionally I'd extend credit because um, that was more like paying tuition. And sometimes people didn't have the money at the beginning of the thing. And so I would take a risk and extend credit to them. And I never got burned there, but I did get burned early in my career when I was seeing somebody individually. I had a pretty low rate and they build up a $1,500 balance and they promised to pay me. And I know that them not paying me wasn't nefarious or dishonorable or anything, but um, they didn't. they never did. I, I, it's been so long, I can't remember how therapy stopped. I think they moved away. Um, but that was just a mistake of, a boundary mistake. It's I'm, I wasn't doing that person any favors by um, ignoring my own limit. And I'm thinking now about, well, what's the impact on the relationship by allowing that to happen? That's that pseudo nice shit that sometimes we can find ourselves doing. It isn't actually nice, it's pseudo nice, but it's not real. Yeah, So um, so I don't let clients, I don't carry credit. Um, people pay me at at the time of the service. And you don't use insurance anymore. No. I, I'll give a statement for individual clients, not for couples anymore. I don't do that. But um, For out of network. Out of network, yeah. yeah. Are you saying that with the client that you allowed to carry a balance that they requested it and you went against your policy and allowed them to carry a, a balance because, be, is that what you're saying? I didn't really have a policy and I didn't understand, um, I didn't really understand that boundary. That was a mistake. Now, when I was in graduate school, I saw my therapist and she did two things for me. She cut her rate in half and she extended me credit. So I literally did not pay for therapy for the last year of graduate school. And Because you couldn't afford it. Otherwise. I couldn't afford it. And she was committed to me and wanted to see me. And I think just took a risk on me. Um, and she cut her fee in half for me. I mean, that was just really generous of her. Um, and I, did, I paid her off. Uh, and that was a good thing that she did that, you think? Yeah, it was helpful to me. And so since then, I've done that uh, with a, someone who I was working with who was a grad student, grad student. I did the same thing. I cut my fee in half. I, I don't think that that person ever asked for credit. But I probably would have extended credit mm-hmm. under that circumstance because, you know, they were trying to get through school and or whatever. And um, I would probably do that occasionally. But um, I don't think I'm required to. I don't have an ethical or moral responsibility to that no it's a suggestion in the ethical codes to 
help people yeah. in need. That can look like a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, for some, it means that they provide some pro bono. Yeah. That, that's what I do. Right. For others, it might mean that they lower their fee for some people. Right. Or they have a low fee in general, or they work in an agency that serves marginalized individuals. Right. So there's a number of ways one could do it. You could also, this is what I tell students, because they're so concerned in the beginning about being a respectable, good therapist that they will be focusing on giving back to the community right away, which is great. And if they can, then great. But what I say is that all has to be balanced out with you paying your bills and paying your student loans. So if you can't viably do that or it's kind of a hardship, because I'll see people right after graduation still be unpaid as an what they call an extern or right. a post-grad intern. Who, right. uh, and, and they're like, well, and they're, they're being offered gigs where they're they would get paid a lot more, right? but they would be working with privileged people, people yeah. who can pay cash or people who have jobs and insurance. And these mentees or students, trainees of mine, they will say, well, but I want to give back to the community. And it feels selfish to myself to leave this position where I'm helping marginalized individuals. I feel like I'm, I'm taking it. I'm taking this other job because of greed and what I'll say to them is, uh, you you presumably entered this occupation so you could pay your fucking bills. So do that first. And then 5, 10, 20 years down the road, once you've established yourself, then you can start to actually enact this desire to give back to the community. And why would novice therapists be expected to carry all that weight? There's There's a lot of therapists that are established and have paid off their student loans and they, they're not living paycheck to paycheck, and they can absolutely give back to the community and should ethically. Put that off. Don't, don't, don't worry about it right now. You know, there's a lot of different perspectives on this, obviously, but I just find that a lot of novice therapists, particularly women, will feel like it's their job yeah, to like, sacrifice themselves and their, their bottom yeah. line to save the world. And I'm like, you know... I mean, let alone the fact that you're an intern for over a year for free, often providing services to marginalized folks. Actually so, paying to work there. Yeah, you're actually, as a student, you're paying tuition to be an intern. So that counts for a lot in terms of giving back to the community. Yeah. And if getting a job that works, that happens. And the other thing is, it's not your fault if you're a novice clinician that the system is set up to privilege privileged people and to make it so that in a lot of instances, the only way you're going to pay your bills, the only way you're going to pay off your student loans is if you work with a privileged population in your town. It's not your fault that the system is set up that way. You don't have to suffer because the system has been set up to privilege the privileged. So... The system needs to change. The system needs to be more robust. F tax dollars need to be allocated so mm -hmm. that uh, people of all tiers of privilege have ample ac access to mental health care. And the providers who provide those services should be paid the same across the board. You, you, why would you get paid more to work with a rich person than a, than a poor person? It just It's the same therapy. Yeah. If anything, you should be paid more to work with poor people, potentially. Anyway, so that's my communist point of view. But 
More socialist, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I carry two low fee slots right now. Oh. That um for um uh and they're both well used. Okay. Yeah, I would imagine. So for me and the money thing, I could talk for a long time, but in brief, yeah, it can be awkward and and I always try to train that out of people in the beginning because when you ent- when you enter the field and when you decide to become a therapist, you don't think, oh, I'm going to be in a position where I have to hound my clients for money. You, you, that's not usually what you're signing up for. Now, if you're working at an agency, all this is taken care of you. If you're working at a group practice or something, there's an administrator that will, there's a policy. As soon as you show up, the receptionist will charge you, that kind of thing. It all gets worked out. There can be, in those situations, sometimes, uh, uh, questions from a client that will say, hey, I'm running out of my insurance, you know, but generally speaking, there's administrators that will take care of all that. What we're mainly talking about is when you're self-employed, either in a group practice or private practice, sole private practice, and you have no receptionist, you have no administrator. It's you are the therapist, you are the receptionist, you are the bill collector, you are the, the person who bills insurance, you're the, you're the paperwork person, you know, you're everything. Uh, you're you're the whole office. Whenever you walk into the dentist office, you see various different non-dentists working in the office. They're doing a lot of different tasks that us in private practice, we have to do all ourselves. So so that's one thing. And you might be a very skilled therapist, but terrible as a business owner. Terrible. That's fairly t- common. Terrible with money. Right. Yeah. And it feels bad because with a client that might have a hard time paying the fee every time you feel bad as a naturally you should feel bad as a therapist but does that mean that you just throw out your livelihood or that you put it at risk by providing free service to someone for a while hoping that one day they they might pay you also it's a bit of a risk liability wise to send someone to collections or to sue them i would never do that yeah it's well known that if you had a client that ran up a $1,500 credit and then they terminated and then failed to pay, if you took them to court or had collectors go after them, there's a chance that they'll do anything to get out of paying that uh-huh. bill yeah. and they're no longer connected to you because they've terminated. So they might actually just send a complaint to the state and say, yeah. I don't want to pay this bill because... The, they didn't the therapy didn't really work not every client would do this of course yeah but it it it's a well-known know. statistic that it raises the risk because yeah. their money's on the line and people will do a lot of different things to get out of paying that bill right you know it's it's like you go into a restaurant and you're uh, you suddenly realize that you don't have any money or the bill is a lot bigger than you realized you'll do a lot to get out of paying that bill because yeah your livelihood's on the line, you might not be able to pay. And that's the other thing. It's not like these people are just choosing not to pay. Their their finances are such that yeah. they might not be able to pay rent otherwise if, right. they, if they paid you. Right. So it puts people in a bad position. It puts us in a bad position where we have to refuse service to someone who might really need it, yeah. someone that we really care about because they can't pay and they can't and we're putting them in a situation where they have to choose between rent and food and they might have kids as well uh, and therapy so it's a and that's not again it's not our fault it's the government's fault it's the taxpayers fault it's the voters fault for not allocating the funds for these people to get services so 
uh, you know, there's a lot of different perspectives on this. Yeah. And um, for a lot of therapists, they will figure something out and maybe occasionally provide lower fee services or sure. have referrals on hand to, right. uh, that's what I would do. I, I always had a, a bunch of newly graduated therapists who I was supervising who I would get them to agree to a lower fee at times because they were happy to have someone for $50 an hour because at their agency job, they were getting paid $22 an hour or something. So they were happy to take a $50 client, which is extremely low. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, I would always support and even recommend my supervisees have a minimum charge of, I think, in today's dollars, I would you know 120 would be a, a, the at the very low end because mm-hmm. a lot of novice therapists will feel really bad about yep. themselves as a therapist oh, yeah. and, and undercharge. I yep. did that. You know, I did that. F- yeah, my very first private practice client was 35 dollars. Uh, mine was 40, and I drove to their house. <laughs> so I didn't do that. <laughs> it was two hours. It was yeah. an hour commute and yeah. an hour session, and I charged 35 dollars. But that was still more money than I was getting paid at, oh, the, yeah. agen- at the agency. Yeah, yeah. I was Me getting too. paid 13 dollars an hour at the agency. Oh, you lucky duck. So I took it, but I also eventually and was happy about it. Yeah. But eventually, I'm like, I think I can charge more. And then the second private practice client I had, I charged $85. Wow. <laughs> so my, my price went from 35 to 85 And then it, it stayed at 85 for a, a long time. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, I would hear uh, a colleague who might have even less experience than me charging 50% more than me. And I'd be like, I'd always feel bad. So, you know, what Priscilla from Brazil is talking about is like, is it, is it sensitive? Is it, is it hard? And, and yeah. It, yeah. You know, and that, that's why you need a mentor to kind of yeah. shepherd you through to say, look, you're worth it. Yeah. Set a price. Forget it. Don't. Because the thing is, is you as a therapist, you know, barring some law regarding price fixing or something, which, yeah. which you can get in trouble for. You can, yeah. If you play willy-nilly with your prices right it, it's sort of like it could be considered discrimination essentially mm-hmm. when you walk into a 7-eleven they don't make up the gas price or the price for candy bars for everyone who walks in it's just a right. set price it's, just, it's non-discriminatory right yeah. and so you, you have to be careful about that as a therapist but it rarely happens but the but in general as therapists we can set our our own prices and it's hard to know what is fair you know, mm-hmm. it's like, well, I could live off a fee of $50 an hour. I'd be living paycheck to paycheck, and I would never move out of this one-bedroom studio apartment where the person upstairs is pounding on the floor. You know, um, <laughs> I'll be living in this place for the rest of my life. But, you know, and, it, and it'll work, I think. So you have these really caring, compassionate, social justice-oriented individuals who have to make up a price. And so you need a mentor to, to yeah. really give you the permission and and almost kind of strong arm these yeah. novice clinicians to say like, look, you're worth it mm-hmm. and knock it off, set a price that demonstrates your worth and, the, at the, and that the market will bear. Of, of course, you don't want to charge so much that no one will uh, be able to afford that or want to pay for it. Um, and it's not your fault that the system is set up for the privileged. You know what I mean? That's it's not your fault. So, 
what you think of some? Yeah, I think I've spent more in training since graduate school than I spent for graduate school tuition. Really? Yeah. Wow. You've been, through, you've been through a lot of training. A lot of training. Meaning that it justifies charging because you have yeah. to pay for that. Yeah. Yeah. And this stuff was really hard to learn. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I was way worse than you. So with all, I, I avoided talking about money in the beginning with, so back in the day, see now you take their credit card or their Venmo or something. Yeah, that's true. And it's, it's, and by the way, Venmo, you shouldn't be using because it's not encrypted and blah, blah, blah. Oh, really? Or it has issues. I Well, that's what I've heard. Okay. Anyway, I don't look quote into me that. on that. It, whatever payment online thing you're using, you just got to make sure that it's HIPAA compliant, which I don't think they all are. Or at the very least on Venmo, you got to make sure that your privacy settings are set so that oh. they, it doesn't publish who's, yeah. who's paying you. Right. With Venmo, if you friend somebody, it's everybody can see it. So if somebody uses Venmo, I... I'm, it's, I don't friend anybody. It's not friend. It's the privacy settings. So there's a setting in Venmo from my memory that you can say, I don't want any of my transactions right. to go on my... It's Venmo right. is like Facebook. It has yeah, like, yeah. A, has it's like, like a the public, Facebook of money exchange. Yeah, it's like really kind of not a great thing for therapists to use. Anyway, I, I don't know that much about it. I, right. I'm out of that loop. I used to know everything because I used to supervise people and I used to have to know that stuff. I don't know it today. But right. the point is, is that now with credit cards and automatic payments and stuff, it it's a lot easier. But back in the day, they had to give you a check every yeah. time yeah. <laughs> that they paid for something. Right. And we as private practitioners had, to my knowledge, no ability to use credit cards. I remember when oh, yeah. that ability came out with that square thing. Yeah, yeah, I have, I, yep. In like 2012 or something. Yeah. And you, you got a reader and stuff. And, yeah. And it was like revolutionary to us. But uh, back in the day, it was it was a check, so you had to ask them to pay you. It was awkward, you know. They'd have to pull it out and write out the check and give you the check or give you cash, and you'd have to write a, a receipt for it. And you know, it was a thing. Do you remember the credit card stampy things? Yeah, I had one. Why? Because we were taking credit cards for the skills class back in the day. Oh, and so they ka-chunk, sent us ka-chunk. one. The ka-chunk, ka-chunk. Yeah, I once charged this guy three times for tuition because I didn't understand how to do it and I did it three times and he's like uh Bob (laughs) I'm like ah I screwed it up anyways yeah yeah we used that for not very long yeah yeah because it was so cumbersome and it's kind of cool to think about that you had one of those I had one of those well yeah but you had the coin thing yeah the coin thing Uh, I like the coin thing my ice cream Joe job I would neglect it I you know the client would show up and in my back of my head I'd be like you know you need to ask them to pay and I would just I'd be like "Eh." and clients would even sometimes say should I pay and I'd be like I will do it later like I I I just never wanted to talk about the money thing yeah I still don't like talking about it but my standard thing at the end of a session if somebody hasn't paid me ahead of time which is what I request up front pay me in in advance of the session please is hey could one of you pay me. And I'd say probably four or five times a week, I'm texting somebody after a meeting and saying, could one of you just pay Oh, me? really? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, that's, um, that's tough, right? It, I don't, I've gotten used to it. Yeah. You get used to it. And, and that's yeah. the thing. Like you just yeah. got to get used to it. You got to get used to it. And, and, and yeah, you got to get used to it. It feels like to this day, I've been, you and I have been therapists for 26 years, maybe longer. Maybe longer. Every time I ask a client to pay me, 
I feel awkward. Yeah. I feel guilty. Yeah. I feel bad. Yeah. I feel sleazy. Yeah. I feel greedy. I feel If wrong. I'm having a bad day or didn't think the session goes well, oh, I feel really bad. I'm like, oh, maybe they shouldn't pay me. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, it, but even when I, I'm proud of myself yeah, yeah, as a yeah. therapist. Yeah, I, no, I get I, it. I feel bad. Yeah. To this day, and I've been in private practice this entire time. I've yeah. been charging people every week. Every week. For, for 26, 26 27 years. <laughs> I, I still feel that little jab of guilt and shame when I'm asking people for money. Does Safeway or does a grocery store feel bad when they're charging people to take food off their aisles? Like, it's weird. It's a weird thing. It, I don't think people feel bad about paying it. You ever feel bad about paying your therapist? I never have. No, I've never felt. Well, I did feel bad one time with my therapist when I was in graduate school for a different reason. What And this, I guess, is related to this topic is that he originally charged me $75 a session, which was on the cheaper side, but right. in 1995, right. it was, you know, today's dollars, you know, it'd be like 150. So he raised his rates to $100 an hour. Right. And I was already not affording $75 an hour. Right. I wasn't working much at all during graduate school. I was um, going in debt, yeah. deeply in debt. Yeah. I was... Um, not only with student loans, but also credit cards. And I, when he raised it to $100 an hour, I was just like, I, can we maybe move to every other week? Mm-hmm. I think that's what I asked. I said, I, I, I still want to stay in therapy with you, but I can't afford yeah. that. So can we move to two times a month instead of four times a month? And he had a problem with that, oh. which is kind of weird, you know, because usually that's not a problem for therapists. That's really yeah. Especially when you are the one raising your rates. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And he said, no, you, you have to terminate with me otherwise. And and That's I remember... rather rigid. Yeah. And I remember saying to him, like, and I was thinking out loud in session. I'm like, wow, yeah, okay, well, I, don't, I just don't know if I can make this work because I was already in a bad place right. Right. with my money. And I'm going more into debt. This is towards the end of my graduate degree yeah. and I was getting more and more scared of how much I mean by the end of my graduation I was earning 2000 a month after taxes and $1100 was going towards interest alone on my student loan and my credit cards wow so I had $900 to live off of and I I spent about $1000 a month on rent and food and car and gas and other kind of stuff just on interest i wasn't even paying on the principle of any of this stuff right i was going more in debt in life and that was a very rough time so oh, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking out loud to my therapist in this moment and he says to me something along the lines of well i find it interesting that given your issues within your childhood that you are questioning all that he used material that i had told him about my life to convince me to pay him his fee you know what i mean like as a way of arguing against you know i would because i was debating actually dropping out because of the conundrum he was putting me in yeah and i i wasn't being punitive to him i was just no. i was just kind of thinking out loud about my finances what your limits are and then he pulls this yeah. this detail out about my issues to try to convince me to pay him his full fee. And I remember it really hit me across the side of the head. And I, I should hope so. Yeah. And I 
I think I, you know, the next session I came to him and I, I told him I didn't appreciate that. You know, uh -huh. it made me feel like I was just a, a dollar sign to him or something. You know, I understand why he would raise his yeah. fee. I was a therapist also at the time. I, right. I got it, but I was just saying I, I'm in a, I'm in a legit financial problem right now, and so I, I was just thinking out loud. And for you to use my childhood as a way to convince me. And he never really apologized mm, about it. That's a mistake. <clears throat> and so maybe that, you know, now that I think about it, maybe that's what traumatized me kind of. Because to this day, I still feel bad about chart. That's interesting. I never drew that connection, mm. you know, or at least it influenced it. But yeah, so when I, yeah. I was terrible about collecting fees from clients. Mm. And, and you talk about one client who had a $1,500 bill that never paid yeah. i had multiple clients that had thousands of dollars oh. on their balance that yeah. they never paid they never paid yeah three thousand five thousand dollar balances oh. that i just eventually wrote off yeah right now the it didn't feel good particularly yeah. during portions of my career where that was pretty critical to for me to be able to pay my bills you know it was now, of course, the $5,000 balance would be a few years of therapy that had accrued a bunch of fees, right? Oh, yeah. But uh, so it wasn't like it was, um, you know, a short amount of time. But there were times, especially when we had the downturn in the economy in 2008, like oh, I, yeah. I was going to lose my house. Man. I was really close to that. Wow. Really? I was really close to having to move back in with my parents. And, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. Uh, or you know, someone's parents. Yeah. So it was, um, it was a bad, you know, I wasn't living in luxury by any means. Would you say that you were mismanaging your, yeah. 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 I was yeah. completely, I don't, I didn't, I knew other people like me, but uh, we were rare because you're, you and I, we, we've been at therapists oh, yeah. for the same amount of time. Right. All the, and you're telling me that you've never, been you, you've been pretty uh, buttoned up regarding this requirement and for the most part and only very occasionally would allow balances to accrue i let balances accrue with all my clients yeah it was late in my career when i finally said look everyone has to pay you know the way the standard you have to, when you walk in you pay right or when we start the session the the payment should already be sent yeah. to my account that's it, just what we do every single time i you know I, I was i was pretty bad at it and it was hard but the justification that i had to myself was well I, i'm still able to pay my bills and so i i guess i'll think of this as my pro bono work <laughs> it's sort of forced on me and i want to provide that for some yeah. people so i guess by default this is my pro bono work that i'm providing you know? yeah that's not that's that's more out of, that sounds more like out of guilt than um a real like moral choice but also what am i going to do i'm not going to send them to collections no, no, i'm no, not going to sue them no the only thing you can do is button button up right yeah. which i i which did eventually did. yeah yeah and so to answer your question priscilla yeah it's it's weird and <laughs> it's i'm pretty professional i'm pretty buttoned up yeah. about all the other things yeah you are but when it comes to the money thing i that's so, to this day still hard and i don't think i've said that out loud i don't know if like i'll feel it every time i bill my clients mm -hmm. to this day i still have clients that i still don't charge clients at the beginning of sessions to this day actually oh yeah i'm just I thinking right that. now like i still will uh bill my clients 
every six weeks or something. Oh, yeah. No, I don't do that. <laughs> so, because I don't want to talk about it, and that's so bad. Yeah. I Every supervisee of mine would run into this, and I would say, no, don't do that. Yeah, you would coach them properly. Yeah, and I'd be pretty firm about it in advocating for them, you know what I mean? Because it's like, don't yeah. be like me. Yeah. You don't want a, a yeah, career no. of right. constant, you know, just get over mm-hmm. the discomfort now because you have to eventually. And there's nothing inherently dis- uncomfortable no. about it. And denying the reality of the fact that you're charging these individuals is not rational. Yeah. You are charging them. You are a business. You're a restaurant. You're a dry cleaners. You're a plumber. You're a professional. You get paid for your service. Stop acting like you're this Buddha that's just walking around trying to save the world. You know, because it's I mean? not real ethics. It's guilt. Yeah, that that attitude is one of guilt. Yeah, and I wonder if my first, not my first therapist, but my first real significant therapist in graduate school. I wonder if he kind of messed me up. I never thought about that because hmm. it, it, it was a it was rough for me, and it that's how. And then we ended to wrap up the story with him. Mm. I terminated and said, "Well, I guess that's the end of therapy." And we never resolved the rupture. We mm. ended on a on a rupture. Uh, that's that sucks. Yeah, and it felt bad. It felt yeah. like he was exploiting me. Like I. I was just a dollar sign. Like, he didn't really care. Now, on the other hand, I chose him particularly because I wanted someone who wasn't real warm. I Uh wanted someone who would really go after me. So I guess it was sort of in that direction. But that felt pretty bad, right, to to use my material as an argument for their pocketbook. You know what I mean? It sounds like the flip side of guilt. An overcompensation, or yeah, something. Like yeah. An, uh, yeah, like an aggression, right? Yeah, out of his own discomfort. Okay, I hadn't thought about that. That makes me feel a little better that at least underneath it was guilt. <laughs> we did remain friends and colleagues beyond that. I no would, kidding. I would refer to him, and, oh. and he would reach out to me at times yeah. um, over the years. I, I'm guessing he's still in practice. I wonder if he is. Hmm. Let's take a break, Bob. When we get back, I'll report on whether or not he's still in practice. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a new year, so of course it's time for New Year's resolutions. But often, those are just manifestations of internalized harmful voices, voices that tell us we're not good enough. So instead of making a resolution to change something, let's recognize that we are already good enough. Now, most people think of therapy as a place for us to work on our problems, but there are several schools of thought within the field of psychotherapy that adamantly reject that paradigm, like narrative therapy and solution-focused. Instead, these clinicians help us focus on what we're already doing well, and by helping us do that, data shows that we often will gravitate towards more beneficial patterns. Well, one place you can find such therapists is on BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, it's definitely worth giving a try. So celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Kirk today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kirk. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. 
In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. We're back from the break. Yeah, he's still in practice. I don't want to say his name because no. I've been talking shit about him. So <laughs> let's do an OPP, Ooh, Bob. So yeah. these people became patrons all the way back in 2020. We have Kinsey from California. Mm. We have Chriselle. Oh, that's a nice name from God knows where. We have Anne, Jade, Alexander, Andrea, James, Ryan, Sweet, and Reen, or Rin from God knows where. Mm-hmm. We have Andrea from Seattle. Hey. And Katerine, Katerin from Norway. Wow. So thank you so much for becoming a patron all the way back in 2020. What, what month do we know? Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't, I haven't, oh, okay. I haven't, I don't okay. have that designated at this point. So thank you so much. Now let's get to more emails here. Yeah. We have an email from up to your patron page. She says, Hello, Bob and Dr. Kirk. I have always been the black sheep of my family, which became worse after we lost my older brother to cancer in 2019. I've always been the black sheep of my family, which became worse after we lost my older brother to cancer in 2019. We were not particularly close, I think, as a family, as he was nearly 10 years older than me, Mm. but we also enjoyed each other's company. Mm. At the risk of sounding creepy... I promise I am a safe and sane person. I have started to think of you and Dr. Kirk, Bob and Dr. Kirk, like surrogate big brothers. Aww. I had this big revelation as I was out walking my dogs and listening to an episode where you both discussed attachment. I began crying and literally laughed out loud at how absurdly marvelous it is to find a source of healing and connection in such an unlikely place. I am now seriously considering a career in mental health after working as an RN for the past 17 years. I'm sure this is partly because I've had such such good role models, the two of you, as well as my own therapist. Thank you. So end of email. Any thoughts on that, Bob? I like the name Paige, and thank you, Paige. Um, That's uh, really heartwarming. Yeah, and... I can relate. I listen to TBTL, a pod, local podcast, just two guys, comedy, talking about news and stuff. And I think of them as my younger brothers because they're my younger brother's age. Mm-hmm. And I uh, absolutely feel bonded to them. They're not bonded to me <laughs> because they barely know me, but but I absolutely feel that way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's sort of like... If, you know, I had two younger brothers who were really talkative and I was often just really quiet listening, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's what it feels like. So, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I'm i glad that you feel warm in that way. And I'm sure if we knew each other, 
we would we would be that way to each other in, in, in real life. Patron Rebecca from Ohio, she says, Hi, Bob and Kirk. I am schizophrenic and bipolar. Oh. I want to be a therapist and help oh. people. Mm-hmm. Will I be blocked out of the profession because of my illness? Mm-hmm. I don't want to go to college and spend all that time and money just not to be able to help people. I hate that my illness means that in the eyes of many people, I could be a cult leader or a serial, serial killer, but not a healer or a helper. I am dedicated to making my, I, I am dedicated to taking my medication and going to therapy. Bob, what do you think? Well, um, I feel sad about the ignorance that the world holds towards folks with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, um, that they would have such a weirdo, distorted view that somehow somebody with these difficulties is going to be a cult leader. Though, I get it. I mean, weird, the world's an ignorant place. Um, there's nothing about those that bars you from pursuing a career. Good luck to you. Yeah, absolutely. There's There's nothing... Plenty of people in our business have various different diagnoses, including schizophrenia and bipolar. There are things to consider, of course, but by no means does it mean you can't be a therapist. In a lot of ways, it gives you a a strength because you understand what the system is like. You've probably been to a lot of therapy. You understand the medication world. Yeah. You understand what schizophrenia is. You understand what bipolar is. You understand the stigma against various different mental health conditions. That's the leg up when you think about who goes to graduate school. Most people don't have any understanding of those things whatsoever. And yeah, you have a intimate knowledge of them. Yeah. And if you choose to work with other people who have the diagnoses like these, imagine having a therapist. Yeah. That also you have bipolar, and imagine your therapist also has bipolar, right? And can absolutely relate yep. to what you're. I mean, that would just be right. astronomically helpful for right. these individuals. So, you don't have to work with these individuals if that's no, not your thing. Of course, but not. but you know, there's there's no reason. Again, there are things you have to account for, but really everyone does. You know, whether you have yeah. an issue or not, you have to account for your own ups and downs, yep. your own potential impairments right. to your ability to work. Right. And, you know, as long as you do that, there, there shouldn't be a problem. Right on. And, you know, worst case scenario, you have an episode and you have systems in place to uh, cancel your clients for a few weeks or something. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it's, it's not a problem. Right. All right. This next email is from patron Steph from Atlantic Canada. So the Atlantic Coast Canada, Steph, she says, Hi, Kirk and Bob. Hearing your thoughts on Eastern Canada made me laugh so hard. We're such a tiny part of the world. I'm in Halifax. Oh, I've been to Halifax. Victoria in BC, but the other coast. So just chiming in, do you remember us talking about Eastern Canada? Nope. Well, I I think what we were saying, or at least I was, was Eastern Canada, I don't understand it. It's it's this conglomerate. (laughs) I might have also been saying that I have this stereotypical idea of everyone that lives up there, that they're all just like like shrimp boat people or something. Which you know, I'm sure is really awful. I, I uh, people don't think this anymore, I, but I th- I think people still do. When you lived in Pennsylvania growing up, what did you think about in the 80s and the 70s? What did you think about people in Seattle? I didn't. Yeah, I had a, a jigsaw puzzle I got for Christmas one year that was a map of the U.S. and I remember looking at Washington State and recognizing that they they had all the capitals listed, so that was Olympia. And um, I remember 
knowing that name Seattle, but other than that, I never thought about this place until my brother moved here. Okay. Yeah. Right. So it was a completely unknown outpost. Unknown. It'd be like Anchorage or something. Yeah. I don't. I still don't know what that is. Well, I remember before grunge and the dot com thing, the associations with Seattle in the seventies and eighties. If if people regarded or knew anything about us, they thought of us as lumberjacks. What about Bo- Boeing? No. No. Lumberjacks. Lumberjacks. All right. Lumberjacks. Or a lot of people thought we were in Alaska, or they thought of us as a really snowy, cold place. Wow. In fact, uh, the hurricane that hit New Orleans, and a lot of people were Katrina. displaced. Katrina. Yeah. And a lot of people were displaced. That would have been 2020 years ago or something. Yeah. 2005, okay. yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Wait, so how long ago was that? Almost 20 years ago? Yeah, almost. There were communities that opened up their shelters or homes to people temporarily who were displaced to live until they could get their lives back in order and go back to New Orleans. And I remember there were communities in Colorado, I think Denver, and also Seattle that said, hey, if, if anyone wants to, we have a whole system up here and you can come up here. And the folks and there were they were interviewing people in New Orleans about uh, taking advantage of this. The people being interviewed says we don't want to we don't mind going to Colorado, but we don't want to go to Seattle because it's really snowy in Alaska. <laughs> and I remember being like, "Wow, I mean, yeah, you're but, not wrong." <laughs> uh, yeah. So it was, uh, you know, there was all, so I imagine that my associations with Eastern Canada are along those lines, you uh-huh. know what I mean? The thing is, Steph, from Atlantic Canada, is what you, you need a Kurt Cobain to put you on the map, you know, and then suddenly everyone <laughs> will know at least something about your your town, you know? Oh, the Cape Breton Follies. Like Halif- they need to go big. Like Halifax. Do you have any association with Halifax? I just was there when I was a kid. What is, is Halifax an island or a town? It's or, a town. Yeah. Or a province? A city, yeah. Oh, it's a city. Yeah. Okay. It's what, in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia. I mean, I mean, you lived over there, so that you, you, I have no. Well, I, yeah, but I lived outside Philadelphia, not Jersey. Yeah. Nothing wrong with Jersey, but I'm just not from there. Uh, when I was in Nova Scotia, when we was kids, it was very rural. Oh, you was, would go there, like, to vacation? I went there once. Oh. We, we spent two weeks up there. My... The people that hosted us were friends of my folks from church, really lovely older couple. And the dad, his name was uh, Paul Dontremont, Paul and Grace Dontremont. They were really nice. They were really, really nice people. And they hosted us for a couple weeks up there. And uh, he was telling us a story that a molasses freight car on on the train, um, when he was a kid, tipped over. And molasses spilled out and it ran down the rocks for two weeks. So he and his friends would go there every afternoon with bread and they just scoop molasses dripping off the rocks and have, you know, a snack or whatever. I was, I just love that story. It's it really is. It's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Anyways, beautiful up there. Uh, your next so, vacation. I guess. <laughs> Patron Steph says, if you and Bob could reverse time and go back to any age and continue Ooh. living your life from that age, what age or year would you go back to and why? Wish you both wish you both and the pod wife a beautiful rest of October and Canadian oh. Thanksgiving this weekend. So obviously this email yeah. goes back a ways. So Bob, if you could reverse time and go back to any age, what age would that be? Well, I'm going to just tweak it a bit and make it work for me. It'd be 15 
And instead of joining the band, I would have gone and run track. You would have gone to oh, track. Oh, I would have. I would have run track, and I would have done school. You couldn't musicals. do both. You could do both. I was just so scared of doing anything that I didn't do nothing. Oh, except the band. And so I would skip that because you know the band was great and my friends wonderful. You played clarinet, clarinet, or? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but I liked running. I loved running, mm. and I was fast. You know, I wasn't like fast, fast, like you know, like Olympic like, fast. But I was fast, like sprinting, uh, more middle distance and distance. Yeah, really. Um, uh, and I did that one spring. And when I was a senior, I ran track and I realized I screwed up and wasted four years where I could have been running great guys that I ran with. And I just really loved it. It was fun. And that's the only reason why you would go back to 15? I don't have a whole lot of regret. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the, it's the one of the, it's one of the main ones that I've carried, but I mean, I wouldn't want to stay back then. Mm-hmm. Though I do wish, I was thinking this the other day, I do wish that I had my current wisdom when I was in my 20s, um, it would have shifted a bunch of things for me. And um, I think I just would have been, uh, life would have been easier or better mm-hmm. than 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 it, than it was. So How so? Well, um, let's see. I wouldn't be wrapped so tight as I was back then. I probably wouldn't be as vulnerable to depression. I would probably be more assertive. No, I would definitely be more assertive. And speak my mind, and when crap happened that didn't suit me, I would have spoken up and said no mm-hmm. to it. Um, would I you immediately seek out Colleen? <laughs> like, oh, that's an interesting question. Because, you know, you met Colleen. I was uh, 38 when I met Colleen. Right, so would you wait Ooh. until you're 38, or would no, you no, reach no, out no, early? No, 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 no. Uh, Colleen would have been available when she was about 28. So I would have been about 24. Uh, that would have been really interesting. Would you have reached, would you have reached out? To oh her? yeah, for sure. She, she was just entering her own Renaissance. There was this period in life where it was like an explosion of growth for her, where she started exploring the world and her own mind and, um, um, was really coming. I mean, I I love hearing stories about this point in her life and I marvel at it. Like she wanted to travel. She traveled to Italy on her own and she didn't drink alcohol at the time. So she was like, I'm going to Italy. I got to learn how to drink wine. So she started drinking wine with a friend of hers who's anyways. um, And she started reading books about subjects that were interesting to her. And she was just like blossoming Hmm. and, Oh, I get How would excited. you convince her? Because I've actually had this fantasy. Uh-huh. It, it's one of my games that I play to fall asleep. Oh, fun. Is to just, you know, think about some mundane thing that some fantasy that'll never happen. Yeah. Is to go back in time and then really imagine what would I do exactly? And I have had that thought oh, of fun. do I approach Stacy? Or do I wait? Obviously, I'd want to be with her, but I might screw it up if I approach her at a different age because she might not be ready for you might, you might a long-term make, relationship at that point. You might make it better. I mean, it's a fantasy. It gets yeah. to go anyway. But it's weird. It's a weird question, oh, you know, because when I met Stacy, it was, 
it was, you know, I, it feels like destiny and it feels like yeah. if you screw it up, you know, whenever no. there are movies like yep. this, yep. it always goes poorly. Well, we know? all feel like we're destined for the thing that we're in. Yeah. We all feel that way. I think it's an illusion. Right. Who knows? Who knows what would have happened? I mean, Colleen probably would have looked at me and said, I don't like you too much. But, um, uh, so what? It's it fantasy. Is an, but it is an interesting litmus test. And for the listeners out there, you can ask yourself this question. Yeah. Because, and there's very different answers, different types of answers that I would say. One is you go back in time and like Bob and I immediately would want to contact our current spouses. Because I don't know about you, but for me, I did. I would just want to get to that good place and enjoy those years yeah. W- with her. Yeah, um, and that I didn't get a chance to. Right. And so, why waste your time right. with other kinds of dating when you know it's doomed and and it's it's not uh-huh. it's not my the love of my life. Right. It'd feel like cheating, I guess, if yeah. anything happened. So there's that response, which is indicative of something. And then another response, which I think is still in in line with being in love, is you would say, well, I wouldn't want to screw it up, or I Mm -hmm. might take the opportunity to just kind of dabble around, you know, for a couple years. And then if that bores me or feels not so great, then yeah, then I'll, I'll... start the rest of my life and hit up my spouse. That's not the most romantic response, but you know, I could see yeah. I could see someone saying that yeah. and although if Stacy had that answer, I think it would slightly hurt my feelings. Yeah. W- would that slightly hurt your feelings? <laughs> Colleen said I'd like to dabble a bit. Yeah. And she knew she could have just phoned me up. Yeah, it probably bugged me a little bit, but let's be real. It's just a fantasy. Right. And but the still, fantasy, it, though, keep in mind that the fantasy tells you more about where you are now than it right. than ever. But here's the thing. If I go back to when I'm 15, I'm phoning you up and you're only 11. <laughs> <laughs> me? I'm 11? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I call you up. Hey, Kirk. <laughs> Are you up there in Alaska? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that'd be that'd be funny. Yeah, would 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 you? What would happen there? Like, hey, guess what? We're gonna be really, really, really good friends in a little while. It would help me to know where my career was going. Well, let's see. I met you 15 years after you were 11. Yeah, I, I you well, were 26. I was, I was 20, 24. No, I was 24 when you met oh, me. Oh, right, yeah. right, right. Okay. Um, no, that's not that long when you think about life from this age. No. Yeah. 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 Weird, huh? The other answer, of course, is if I could go back in time, I would I would never want to meet my partner. <laughs> right? That's what some people would say. And if or you would question as to whether or not you would ever engage with your with your current partner. Right. Well, I, I I I'm kinda turned on thinking about meeting Colleen when she would say 28 or 29, somewhere in there. Yeah. That's like exciting. Yeah. But you, I'm just saying like if yeah, a yeah. listener out there right. says to themselves, if I could go back in time, right. I would snatch up that other person or mm. I would uh, maybe wait 20 years before meeting the current person I'm with. I, I think it's kind of a litmus test for mm-hmm. How yeah, in love or how right. much you're, how much you appreciate your relationship, how much you appreciate this right. person. It, there's no right or wrong answer, of course. I, you know, I could see someone viably saying, "If I could go back in time, no, I, I would wait 
to settle down because or or even i could see someone saying i settled down too early and i i I love my spouse sure but i regret not having that that experience that people have in college you know i i met my sweetheart in high school and didn't get to experience the college years so i would uh, put that off i still love my partner but I, i would absolutely put that off because i i feel like i've i damaged myself kind of because i I, I have this unmet need or this curiosity that was never met. And so I'd want to do that. But I don't know. Yeah. It is kind of an interesting question. Um, it's a great question. For me, like what age would I go back to? Yeah, what would you? In my fantasy, I usually go back to childhood, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And mm. if we retain our current knowledge, I often imagine that... I would become sort of some sort of prodigy and graduate from college at the age of 10 or something, you know, not because I wanted to show off, but because I, I, I would be so bored. You, you, but, then, yeah. but then other times when I play out the fantasy, I actually just kick back and play dumb because I don't have responsibilities I and I could just... I, I could maybe learn on the side or something. Right. But another thing that I do in my fantasy is I instantly write down as much that I can remember from my life. I try to write down uh, songs that I've written because, you know, a lot of the songs that I've written in my life, they're the only reason why I can remember how to play them is because I have them recorded somewhere. And so I wouldn't want to lose that. You know, I wouldn't want to lose... I've written hundreds of songs, and a good number of them, if not all of them, are really quite dear to me. Oh. I, I don't think any of them are fantastic songs, but they're, they're important to me. Yeah. They they reflect a time in my life, not only lyric-wise, but also just vibe-wise and songwriting vibe-wise. It's you know, it's it's one's art. I would also want to write down things that I remembered in my life, so that I wouldn't forget what happened because obviously things would turn out differently. And then eventually in my fantasy, I get to, I would also write down known stock price surges. Google back in the day, right? Microsoft was Apple, Apple, other kinds of things that, and what I would do is I, so this is me trying to fall asleep at the age of like eight I am trying to convince my parents somehow, and I, sometimes I literally just tell them I'm from the future, so you, you just have to, and I can prove it to you because yeah. I can predict who's going to win the president or who. Yeah, who's going to win the baseball game next week. I know the Eagles are going to lose the Super Bowl what? in like 1980 or something. Oh, yeah. That, that, um, yeah. I think it was around there. Yeah. And there's this fella called, uh, well, I guess Michael Jackson was already a thing in the 70s. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, I would have been able to to somehow um, demonstrate that I was from the future. And then I would say, and I need you to hand over your investment to me because I can turn even yeah. $1,000 into a million dollars within 10 years yeah. if you just just because I, I know where the stock prices are going. Give me a grand going. and yeah. it'll all be fine. Yeah. Or invest in this and don't take it out until this year or something because I would want to make my parents uh, not have to work and they could um, retire earlier. Uh, That would have been good for my dad. He was getting tired. Yeah. 
yeah, for the last 10 years, he and I would talk business because we both owned a business and he would say, well, I can still do it, but I don't love it like I used to. And I think he would have liked to have retired and... Um, what was wearisome? Accountant, right? Yeah, so accounting. What was weary about it? 40 years of it. But like, was it client contact? Was it crunching the numbers? I think it was, yeah, number something in number crunching. Yeah. he. I think he liked the client contact, but... Um, I could see it getting tedious. Tedious, yeah. Because from an accountant's point of view, it's not very interesting. It's just it's, expenses. It, you want it to be routine if you're an accountant. You don't want to have to think about stuff because you don't have to keep reinventing a wheel. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I'm very happy with my accountant. Yeah. Who's your friend from school. Oh, I forgot that I referred. Yeah. Yeah. Good old Daryl Thompson from college. He was in my frat. Yeah. He was sort of my unofficial big brother. When, oh, when you're in yeah. a frat, you have big brother, big sister, right. little brother, little sister. Yeah. And meaning that you would couple with another sorority and you would have big sister, little sister. We had official, I had an official big brother who was also uh, like a big brother to me, but Daryl Thompson was um, kind of like a big brother. And he's an accountant in central Washington. Yeah. And he's very good. He's, good guy. he's been that. He's had that job for 30 years. Yeah. And um, when my finances, I always did my own oh, accounting. Yeah. And, it's very simple and taxes. back in the day. Yeah. Well, I'm, I made it simple, but it was way more complicated than I realized it was. And so when I actually engaged with an actual account, I could afford an actual accountant. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, my God, I I wasn't doing things I mean, I always right. made sure I was paying my taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you there's left, so many ins and outs. You, you left know? money on the table, potentially. Yeah, yeah. That is that topic. What were we talking about, Bob? It was going back in time. Oh, yeah. So do you ever think, would you do that too? Would you try to invest money? or would Oh, you, for sure. Would you do anything else? Like Another thing that I think about in my fantasy is I would try to stop... Nine eleven. I would try right. to stop certain wars. I would right. try to stop certain assassinations, for right. example, John Lennon, for right. example. And then, you know, in the movie version, it screws everything up right. because then because John Lennon doesn't die, then uh, this other bad consequence happens. Right. And, um, What's but, that Stephen King novel, Eleven Twenty Two? something. I don't know. Is that the premise? Yeah, he goes back in time before Kennedy's assassinated, assassinated and lives life. And um, it it totally screws up the universe. He he saves Kennedy from the assassination. Yeah, and the universe is completely screwed up as a result of it. And nuclear war, probably. I'm guessing. I would be the just don't remember, but I remember this. It's a really good book. Huh. Stephen King. Some Stephen King. I don't. I'm not a horror guy. I don't really care about that. But he. I think he's a really great writer. And that one was a really fun book. Yeah. Yeah. Eleven twenty-two. It's November twenty-second. That's the date Kennedy was shot. But the year, 64, was 63. it? 11-22-63 is the name of the book. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Good let's book. Take, let's take a break, Bob, and yep. then we get back. Just a few more questions. What do you say? Yes. All right. We're back from the break. So it's just me right now. I recorded this whole episode with Bob, and I'm coming back to this point in the recording to say that the rest is going to be for patrons of the podcast. It's one of those episodes where Bob and I get into a lot of personal things that, I don't know, it just feels more comfortable to limiting the the listenership to our patrons. So if you want to hear the rest of this episode in which Bob and I get into some personal things, uh, you can become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. 
And if you already are a patron, then you should have access to the rest of this episode. And if you're not a patron, take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really, really do. <laughs> <laughs>